Commandment number three of the Ten Commandments. I want you to stand with me and read this together, all right? Exodus 20, verse 7. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. You can be seated. What's in a name? I'll tell you there's a lot more than you usually think. Names, most obviously, are used for identification. Have you ever thought about how difficult it would be in a conversation if, you, if, you, if we didn't have names to talk about and, and address one another? And you're in a conversation, you want to reference somebody else, you say, you know who I'm talking about, sandy hair, about 5'11", uh, scar on his right cheek, missing two molars up on the left-hand side, red birthmark under his ear and speaks with a southern drawl. How cumbersome our conversation would be if everybody we had to address or describe in that manner. In early history, people had but one name. During the time of Jesus, we find several in the New Testament who are further identified as son of. Now, sometimes people read this and they think it's their last name. It's not. When you see Simon Barjona, or then you see a lot of names that you, 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 know, you kind of think, well, they must have a penchant for names that we begin with, with B-A-R. You've got Bartholomew, Barsabbas, Barabbas, Barnabas, Bartimaeus, and the list goes on and on. The actual word bar, B-A-R, as is translated for us, means son of. So when you are talking about Simon Bar-Jonah, you're talking about Simon, the son of Jonah. And that was a way of distinguishing this Simon from some other Simon in Jewish culture. It wasn't a last name. It was a distinguishing factor. Actual surnames developed during the 13th and 14th centuries in Europe. Sometimes they grew out of one's trade or occupation. We just go through them today without thinking about that. But names like Baker, Smith, Fowler, Hunter, Archer. Potter. Those all grew out of occupations. We had, um, we've had members in this congregation whose last names came from locations where their family at some time or another probably started. France, England, Canada. All of those have been members of our congregation, but their last names are countries. But you don't think about that when you're calling them by name. Today, we use as many as three or sometimes even four names for a child to distinguish him or her from others. And some parents, I think, should be a little bit more thoughtful before they slap a moniker on a little baby that they're going to have to wear for their whole life. For instance, how about the, the guy whose name was Stan Francisco? What, you know, what were his parents thinking about? Or Crystal Ball? Or Candy Bar? Or how about the guy whose last name was Tennant, and his folks named him Lou? <laughs> Lieutenant. I'm not making these up. These are real names, folks. Or how about the family whose last name was Trout? They had twins. They named one of them River and the other one Lake. <laughs> now, those kids are going to have a lot of baggage through life. Identified, yes, but probably not the best. Names contain much more power than simply identifying a specific person. They also be often become synonymous with somebody's reputation. Proverbs 22.1 reads like this, A good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold. You've heard it before. You need to make a name for yourself. Or do business with him. He's got a good name. Now, obviously, the reference isn't to the quality of the name as though David is somehow better than Thomas. It means having a good name is equivalent to having a good reputation. 
when he's got a good name, she's got a good name, it means they are a person of integrity and character. Names can also reflect a distinction, a character, a personality trait of individuals themselves. Names are not chosen lightly in the scripture. They were an expression of the person or something about the person. When the twins, Esau and Jacob, were born, Esau was named that because Esau means red, and he came out red in color. Jacob came out clutching the heel of his brother as these two twins entered the world. Jacob means heel grabber or deceiver. When the prophet Hosea was married, he was married to an unfaithful wife, and they had three children. And Hosea named each one of his children as a reflection of what was going on in their family at that time, which interestingly, and God used it, was also what was going on in the life of Israel at the time, his family. The first was a boy, and he named him Jezreel. Jezreel means the valley of blood. It was a reference to the bloodshed of idolatry. And so basically, Hosea is looking at his wife and saying, you're going after other lovers. God is saying to his people, you're going after other gods. The second child was a daughter. Her name was Loruhamah, which means no more mercy, no more compassion. And God is saying, I, I can't find it in my heart to be compassionate, merciful, as long as you're going after other gods. Hosea is struggling with his compassion for his wife. Their third child was a son. He named him Loami, which means not my own. What a tough name for a father to give his son, not my own. And God was saying to the nation of Israel through the prophet, you're no longer mine unless you become faithful to me again. Names had power in the scriptures. Names were often changed in the scriptures to reflect a new character or a new standing with God. Abraham and Sarah, her name wasn't always Sarah. Her name was Sarai first, which means princess. God changed it to Sarah, which means queen of a nation. Jacob, the heel grabber, the deceiver, goes from being Jacob to being named Israel, which means prince of God. Names can also represent authority. By their actions, certain historic names like Abraham Lincoln or Winston Churchill represent authoritative leadership during times of crisis and conflict. When God named Adam and gave him the responsibility of taking care of the garden, he also gave him the authority to name all of the animal kingdom. God didn't just say, you, you human beings, you, you figure this out. He said, Adam, I'm giving you the authority. Your name, Adam, has the authority to name all of the animals in the kingdom. Names can prod your memory. If you've known somebody extra kind and extra special in your life, anytime you hear the name of that person that you love and care for so dearly, you have a, a, a good feeling. You, you automatically have a good feeling about the person you're about to meet, and it brings to mind this person that is so special to you. On the converse, if you've been abused or mistreated, that name always calls forth bad memories. You can meet somebody that may be a very good person, but if they have that name, you are wary of them immediately because it conjures up all of those images of the past that were so painful. You see, names prod our memory. And names foster respect and admiration. Having just come out of this week when we've celebrated the birth of our nation, these names ought to ring clear to you. George Washington, Paul Revere, Betsy Ross, and Thomas Paine. I suspect you think of them as patriots during the birth of our American liberty. But do you recognize these names? John Hanson, Israel Bissell, Mary Pickersgill, or Sam Wilson? Any of those sound familiar to you? <laughs> Didn't think so. 
But they are in many ways as significant as the others, but you just don't know them. They too helped shape our country. Under the Articles of Confederation in 1781, 1781, that's five years after we declared independence. Under the Articles of Confederation, John Hansen is unanimously elected by Congress as the President of the United States. So actually, John Hansen was our first president. George Washington was our first president under the Constitution. But you didn't know that, did you? Paul Revere rode 20 miles to warn, the British, uh, uh, warn about the British approach, but Israel Bissell rode a record 350 miles in six days, warning patriots from Massachusetts all the way to Philadelphia about the British coming. 350 miles, six days. Betsy Ross may have created the first flag, but Mary Pickersgill sewed the massive 30-foot by 42-foot flag that was unfurled over Fort McHenry that became the inspiration for the Star-Spangled Banner. And Thomas Paine inspired patriotism with pen and paper, but Sam Wilson? (laughs) Sam Wilson supplied salted meats for the Army of the War of 1812, affectionately known by his employees as Uncle Sam... I bet you can guess what Sam Wilson inspired in our nation's history. These lesser-known patriots were just as powerful and instrumental in creating the quest for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and you probably missed their contributions because you didn't know their names. If you'd known their names, you might have known the history behind them, but somehow those names have been lost in the history of our country, and yet they they did great things. You see, Names are powerful things. There's so much more to a name than we appreciate, which is why God takes the third commandment out of ten and focuses in on his name. He has some specific things he wants to make sure do not happen with his name. And to understand why God said what he did, you have to first of all understand the uniqueness of God's name. The concept of name as used in this command is more than a designator. It is actually a description of his character and person. And you say, well, what is God's personal name? Isn't it God? No. God is a generic name, sort of, for a deity, for the deity. But it's not his personal name. It's sort of like saying, uh, you, preacher, isn't that your name? No, preacher is not my name. You can call me that, but that's not my name. That's a description of what I do. My name is Tom. God is a picture of his deity, but his personal name, his personal name is I am who I am. Now, God introduced himself to us twice. And the first introduction comes to us at the burning bush when he greets Moses and he says to Moses, I am who I am. Now, you go down and you tell the Israelite slaves in Egypt that I am who I am has sent you. The name is rich with meaning. It means no beginning, no end. It means the same yesterday, today, and forever. It means all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving. All the things that we associate with God are wrapped up in that powerful name. But here's our problem. While we know what it means, we don't really know how to pronounce it. And the reason we don't know how to pronounce it clearly, without a doubt, is because the Israelites held it in such sacred high esteem that the name was only uttered once a year in the blessing of the high priest on the people on the Day of Atonement. 
The Israelites came to value the name so highly that when scribes copied the Old Testament manuscripts, when they came to the very name of God, they would stop and they would ceremonially bathe all over and then they would take a new quill to write the name of God. So esteemed was this name in their presence. Additionally, Hebrew text differs from English in this. Not only do we read from right to left in Hebrew, but all you see in the Hebrew language or the, the, the structure are the, the uh, consonants. So when you're looking at these Hebrew letterings, you see the consonants. The vowel sounds are little dots and dashes that appear underneath the consonants to tell you how to pronounce that word. When it comes to the name of God, there are no vowel pointings, and so we don't know. Some suggest his name is pronounced Jehovah. Some suggest it's pronounced Yahweh. I don't know. Only at this point in time, God knows how his name is pronounced for sure. And you say, well, I don't remember reading anything like that in the Bible. Well, when you read his name in your Old Testament text in the English, when you come to the word Lord, and the word Lord appears in all capital letters, that's the name of God. We just use the word Lord to represent it in our English Bibles. What's more important than knowing how to pronounce it? That's easy. Knowing what it means that God introduced himself to us. It speaks of his desire for a relationship with us. When you're in a room and you don't know many people and somebody comes over, extends their hand and says, Hi, I'm so-and-so. That is a warm and, and, and welcoming gesture. And it suddenly makes you feel a little less awkward. And it's basically saying, this is who I am. Who are you? I want to know who you are. Or suppose for a minute that you're in a crowded room, and on the other side of the room stands a king, or maybe the president of the United States, or your favorite celebrity. And all of a sudden, they're scanning the room, and all of a sudden, they spot you, and they make a beeline across that room, and they don't take their eyes off of you as they wind themselves through the crowd, and they get to you, and they stick out their hand, and they say, hi, I'm so-and-so. They don't use any titles. They just give you their personal name, and they say, I'm so-and-so. Uh, I'm glad to meet you. Man, you straighten your shoulders. You, you walk a little taller. The person who's the most important person in this room just introduced himself or herself to me. Now imagine the God of the universe making his way through the cosmos to extend himself to us and say, I am who I am. I want you to know me. I want to know you. I want to share this relationship. The God of the universe. There's nothing short that, uh, of incredible with that concept. What's more, God didn't leave us to wonder what he was like throughout history. He added descriptive terms to his name so we would know him better. Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. Jehovah Shalom, the God of peace. Jehovah Shammah, the God who is there. Jehovah Rohi, the God who shepherds. And the list goes on and on. But of course, his greatest introduction to us, the second introduction, came in what we call the incarnation when God took on humanity and became one of us and was known as Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. The name Jesus means Savior or salvation. The title Christ means, as does Messiah, the anointed one of God. 
Paul wrote powerfully in his letter to the Philippian church, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Given the incredible nature and character of God's name, how in the world? Could we even think of misusing or abusing something so incredibly wonderful and powerful? You might be surprised. Let's take a look at the misuse of God's name. Like us, God's name is an extension of who He is. It's very personal. My name is personal to me. (laughs) Have you ever been around somebody who calls you the wrong name for a long time? I mean, you know... Every time they see you, they call you the wrong name. They think that's what your name is, but it's not your name. It's awkward, isn't it? You just kind of cringe. And, then, oh, okay, hi, hi. And, and then you're wondering, do I tell them or do I not? And you're going to go back and forth. And a lot of times you'll wait way too long, and then you find, I can't put up with this anymore. i got to tell them. And so six months into this relationship, you say, i got to tell you, that's not my name. You know, my name is. Now, the only thing worse than being in a situation where somebody is calling you the wrong name is when you're the one calling the person the wrong name. You know what I mean? When you are the one on the end of that six months explanation saying, you've been calling me, you you don't feel any talk, you just feel miserable. Oh, I can't believe I've been doing that. Does not the name of God deserve the same level of respect at least as what we give to one another? Does His name not deserve even greater respect than what we give to each other. If we are embarrassed and mortified when we call somebody by the wrong name, should we not be even more mortified when we are using God's name in a careless manner? And that's basically what this commandment is about. The word misuse, or in the King James Version, to take in vain simply means to make something empty, to consider it irrelevant, or to use it in an insincere manner. Have you ever done that with the name of God? Used it in a way that made it empty or in vain, irrelevant, or insincere. Obviously, we most often conclude that invoking God's name in a string of profanity is a violation of this text. And that certainly falls under this mandate. But have you, have you ever wondered why we do this? Why, why is something more dynamic when we... We invoke God's name in a streak of, of blue. Why do, why do we feel the need to put God into that? I mean, would you like it if somebody used your name like that? And, and wouldn't it sound ridiculous if somebody used your name like that? Take, take a look at this. What? I swear to Tom, I'm going to throw this thing out the window. You got engaged? Oh my Tom, congratulations! Tom, that hurts! Look at this! They raised our rates again! Oh, for the love of Tom! Bless America! (laughs) Please stay on the line. Your estimated hold time is 94 minutes. Good, Tom. (laughs) 
What in Tom's name? Watford for the win! Yes! Yes! Tom, Tom Ellsworth! <laughs> Isn't that absurd? I mean, you know, that, that's ridiculous. But that, that's what we do with God's name all the time. And why is it just the God of the Scriptures? Did, did you ever see anybody hit their thumb with a hammer and cry out, Hare Krishna? Or in a moment of surprise, Oh my Buddha. No. No, it's just the God of the Scriptures. I'm convinced Satan is doing his best to get us to break commandment number three because he knows how much it takes away from the grandeur and the greatness of God. And have, have you ever thought, have you ever thought if God responded to what you say? What if he really did what you're asking? To ask God to damn something is in essence to plead with him to consign something or someone to hell. Do you really want that? And if God did it, you'd be appalled. But that's what we say. Maybe we ought to consider our language. Another abuse in Scripture was the use of God's name as an oath. In the Old Testament, it became really popular for people to say something like this, As the Lord lives, I will do this or that. And it became so casual and so carelessly used, it was used to kind of use God's name to back up anything. And then, the, then they got really tricky. It became a game, and instead of invoking the name of God, they would invoke something important, but then they didn't have to carry it out. If you made a promise and you said, I promise you by the heavens above, well, you didn't have to carry that one out because you didn't invoke God's name. But if, if you said, I promise you by the God of heavens, well, then, then you had to do that because that was God's name. This isn't, this isn't to keep us from taking an oath in a courtroom where we're going to tell the truth. So long as that's exactly what you do, is you tell the truth God should never be called upon to support anything less than the whole truth. Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. In other words, whatever you say, if it's yes, then people should say, if he said it's yes, I know it's yes. If he said no, I know it's no because he doesn't tell a lie. He's honest and when he makes a promise, you know he'll keep it. Because you see, folks, when you speak like that, then it honors the God that you follow. Be of such character that your word needs no added assurance. And if you do say, as the Lord lives, this is the truth, then you make sure it is the truth. Anything less will make empty the name of God. Just remember what Jesus said, but I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. That is a frightening passage. Use your words carefully. May they speak of God's greatness. There is an honorable use of his name, and I just want to Hit that for you quickly as we close this morning. When you speak the Lord's name, let it be an extension of your faith. You know, anybody can do well during the good times. It's during the bad times that people are really watching you carefully as a Christian to see whether or not your faith is real and genuine. 
And when people see that you are in the tough times of your life, not trusting in your own ability, but you're trusting in the name of God to get you through that, then they will have respect for your faith. So when you speak of God, let it be an extension of your faith in the toughest moments of your life. During the great persecution of the fourth century, when Christians were commanded to sacrifice to the pagan Roman gods or face execution, a 13-year-old girl by the name of Eulalia inspired the church with her unquenchable faith. Facing the tribunal because she would not offer any sacrifices to Roman gods. So she was hauled into the tribunal and facing that tribunal she declared, Behold, here am I an adversary of your satanical sacrifices, I confess with heart and mouth, God alone. She was then tortured with hooks and flames. And as she died, she exclaimed, Lord Jesus Christ, behold my purple blood confesses your holy name. What extraordinary faith. Eulalia died at the age of 13, loving her Lord more than loving life itself. I doubt that we'll be called upon to such a moment like that. But the whole point is that we ought to live with as much conviction as she died with. So when you speak his name, make it an extension of such conviction and faith. And when you speak the Lord's name, let it be an affirmation of your own salvation. Peter preached it boldly in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. No other name. And when you speak the Lord's name, let it be an expression of your worship. Don't just go through the motions on Sunday morning like this, or if you have a private time of worship at home, don't just go through the motions and think, oh boy, whew, I'm glad that's done. I have now obligated my worship to God. The rest of the week is mine. You, you, you can't put God in a box on a shelf like that and just do worship in one hour and feel like you have salved your conscience and done your duty to God. Whenever you utter his name, wherever it may be, let it be an expression of worship. Jesus taught us in his model prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed, our holy be your name. It's holy, so make it worshipful when you utter it. First week of June, Elsie and I went down to the Smoky Mountains for four days and just had a little bit of vacation, kind of to rest and uh, refresh. And, and uh, during that time, we went up into the Smoky Mountain National uh, Park there and up to the top of, of the divide where Klingman's Dome is located. That's that dome on top where you can look out over the Smoky Mountains. And when we parked, well, I, I hadn't been there for years. And when we parked, we started up the, the trailhead. And as you come around to walk up that trail to Klingman's Dome, there is this big boulder rock formation that stands there. And, and suddenly I saw those rocks and, and memories from 40 years ago came flooding back into my mind and my heart. I, 40 years ago, was on a a busload of teenagers that had gone down from southern Indiana to, to take a look at Johnson Bible College in Knoxville, Tennessee. And before we came home, we drove up into the park, and, and there at that, that very rock formation, we all climbed up on top of those rocks, and we began to sing songs of camp, the songs that we'd learned just that summer. And uh, one of my favorite camp songs growing up is one of them that we sang on that rock top, and our voices echoed down through the valley. I don't, I don't think they'd let you do that today, but but they did, the, they did then, and 
you could hear it echo over those smoke. It was, it was an incredible worship moment. One of those songs speaks so well to this sermon this morning. Would you indulge me and sing it with me? If you don't know it, you'll catch on, but I suspect most of you have heard it. His name is wonderful. His name is wonderful. His name is wonderful. Jesus, my Lord. He is the mighty King, Master of everything. His name is wonderful. Jesus, my Lord. He's a so wonderful. You go ahead and be seated. His name is wonderful, Jesus my Lord. It, it, it's the word that just draws out of us a spirit of worship and joy. So what's this third commandment all about? It is to help us remember the power of his name. There is no other name like it. It should never be used in an empty way, an irreverent way, an insincere way. It is the name above all other names. And I so desperately want you to know his name. When Brad and I were in India a few years ago, we met a, the leaders of a group of about 12,000 Indian seekers called the Narakadi. Uh, on, on the left-hand side of the screen is Ajay Lal, who's the missionary that we work with and who we went to be with. But these two gentlemen on the right-hand side of the screen, the one with the yellow scarf and the one in the white with the mustache, are two of those leaders among these 12,000 people. Those men had, had traveled three hours that day to be with us. The, the name, Narakati, means imageless God. This group of people came to the conclusion that, that, that there is one God, the creator God that made all of us, and they abandoned their Hinduism. And they gathered at least twice a year from, from all over the, these people that had come to that conclusion that they would worship together the Creator God. And on one occasion when they were gathered together, one of the preachers from the mission, Central India Christian Mission, happened to, to come across this group and knew what and heard what they were doing. And he stood up with them and he said, let me tell you the story. And he told them the gospel of Jesus Christ and explained the whole thing about Jesus and salvation, all this kind of stuff. And at the end, the leader said to him, we've been worshiping him for some time. We just didn't know his name. Do you know him this morning? To know his name is to begin to know who he is. And more than anything else in this life, I want you to know him, his name, Jesus Christ. Because without knowing him, you cannot know the Father. I am who I am. 
You can change that right now while we stand and while we sing. You come to the Christ.